And today we're going to continue our study of the gospel according to John. We've been looking at this for a few weeks. We'll be looking at it probably for a couple of years. And uh, we're looking today at John 1, verses 14 to 18. If you brought a copy of God's Word, would you turn there uh, with me? If you don't have a copy of God's Word, or if you didn't bring it with us this morning, uh, it's in the Bible in your row. Uh, and if you do not have a Bible, we would love for you to take that and use it as your own. You'll find this passage on page 886. And my hope is that you will always be like the Bereans. We, we meet the Bereans in Acts 17, and Paul says they were more noble than all the others because they searched the scriptures for themselves to see that these things were so. Uh, before I read this passage, I want to draw your attention to a couple things that I think you'll, will help you with the context. Verse 14 is going to use the language of the word, the word. John's already used that word back in verse 1. He said, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He's speaking there of both the creative and the communicative power of God, that God created this world with the intention of revealing Himself to the world. And so there's an emphasis on the creative and communicative power of God in the Word. And the Word is speaking of Jesus Himself. As we're going to talk about today, Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. That's the first thing I want you to see. Second thing, these preliminary verses in John's Gospel are John's birth announcement of the Lord Jesus. But not only for Jesus Himself, but through Him for all God's children who would be adopted by faith into the family, the household of God. And so I, I would argue that verse 14 is one of the most profound statements ever uttered by human lips, that the Son of God, the Word, became flesh. Now before I read the Word, let's pray. Lord God, we are confident of your mercy towards us in Christ and aware that your will for us is better even than anything we would choose for ourselves. And so we come to your word ready to be taught and corrected and reproved and trained in righteousness so that we might all grow to maturity in Christ and more importantly, that we would adore Jesus with all that is in us. We profess that though we are often distracted, the deepest desire of our soul is to know you, to have fellowship with you, and to stand in awe of you. And yet we confess, O oh God, that at times we've been unprofitable hearers. We, we can, uh, don't have to think long to remember how many sermons have gone by, and we've made little or no application of them. And so we pray that you, O oh Lord, who makes your word accomplish that for which you sent it, might bring to our minds more than ever this morning the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ our Lord, that we might count all things lost compared to him, and that we, tasting the fruits of his labors, may long for a more full and perfect fellowship with him. We pray that Christ may be formed in us and live in us, that all our thoughts may be brought into captivity to him and our hearts established in every good work. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen now to the reading of God's Word, John chapter 1, starting at verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This is He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because He was before me. 
and from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one's ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. I don't know when this started in my mind, but every year during the Christmas season, I I wonder what it would be like if somebody who wasn't from around here, who's never heard of Jesus Christ, never heard the name of Christ, knows nothing about Christmas, were plopped down into the middle of our world in December. I just wonder what that conversation would be like. Who's this Jesus that I keep hearing about? Oh, Jesus, he's God. Well, everyone's talking about the birth of a baby. Who's the baby that I keep hearing about? Well, that's Jesus. Our God became a baby. Well, what was he before he was a baby? Well, he was God. Did he stop being God? No, he's still God. He's a baby and he's God. So what is he now? Well, he's a baby that grew up and then died on the cross and was raised from the dead and now he's in heaven. And at Christmas, Christians celebrate his birth. And I always get to this point in this conversation in my mind where I think that the person would look at me and say, you people are nuts. You people are absolutely crazy if you believe these things. Would he be right? Are we crazy that our eternal hope rests on a baby born 2,000 years ago in a small town in Palestine 6,300 miles away from us? Well, if it's not true, then we are crazy. We are utterly crazy to pay any attention to this whatsoever. If it's just a myth, then we ought to go about our daily lives and December 25th ought to be the same as December 26th and 27th and so on. But if it's true, then we're absolutely crazy not to believe it. And and more than that, if it's true, then we're crazy if it doesn't reorient our whole lives so that everything about us, everything about the way we think and the way we live and the way we act and the way we treat our neighbor, the ways we spend our time, all of those things ought to be shaped by this truth if it's true. In other words, if this really happened, then believing it is the most logical thing in the world. Of course, I do believe it's true. I would bet my life, I would bet my eternity on it. It's true not because I say so, but because God's Word says so. But you know, I'd also want to explain to our friend that Jesus did not come merely to create a holiday. In fact, I don't think that's why he came at all. Jesus came to save sinners. And we don't come to him at Christmas in hopes of some sentimental holiday experience. We come to him looking to the one who alone can save our souls and satisfy our our heart's deepest longings. And complete transparency, I'm always a bit perplexed by my own experience of Christmas. Regardless of whether you, as a Christian, celebrate Christmas, and there are many who do not, and and that's fine. The Lord's Day is all we need in terms of a holiday, and we get so many of those every year. But one of the things about Christmas is that reminders of Jesus are everywhere. 
These little teaching tools of Jesus' incarnation, these songs remind us again and again of the incarnation of Christ, this thing on which we hope, uh, we rest our hopes. We're constantly reminded of this one who said to us, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And at the exact same time, most of us are probably busier in the run-up to Christmas than we are any time throughout the rest of the year. In fact, we are in more need of rest today than probably we've been in our lives because this is the busiest season. I can't remember a busier Christmas season. And so what often happens is we get swept away in the tidal wave of Christmas busyness and we lose sight of the one who's the point of it all. My aim this morning is to set before your eyes this Lord Jesus, to set before the eyes of your heart this one, the Word who became flesh. And we're doing this not because it's Christmas Eve. We would do this anyways because this is what the Word sets before our eyes. So we do this because I know that if your soul catches even one glimpse of this glorious Savior and you see how deeply He loves His people, you will find that He is so wonderful and that the only logical response for you will be to love Him with your whole heart. This morning, as we look at this wonderful passage, there's three things that I think the Lord sets before us, and these are outlined in your bulletin. The first thing is God in the flesh. Second, grace in the fullest. Third, glory to God in the highest. That's where we're going to go. First, John makes this astonishing statement that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. He says in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He, he's talking about what we call the incarnation, literally the infleshing of Jesus Christ. In the incarnation, the eternal son of God who as the 19, uh, Nicene Creed said 1,700 years ago, this very God of very God, he wasn't like God, he was truly God, he became man. He wasn't an apparition who just seemed to be man. He was truly man. If he had a, a medical exam and they were to examine his whole body with a scan, they would see that everything about his body looked just like our bodies. He was truly man. And, and yet he never ceased to be God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt is a fascinating word. It's the, the Greek word eskinosin. It, it means tabernacle in the Greek translations of the Hebrew Old Testament. This is the word for tabernacle. It's the dwelling place of God. And so John is saying, this is, a, this is an incredible statement. John is saying, God is dwelling in, with us, not in a place, but in a person. Jesus is the presence of God incarnate. See, in Christianity, we're not coming to a system. We're coming to a Savior. We're coming to the Lord Jesus. It is the cornerstone of Christianity that God became man. If you lose the incarnation, you've got something totally different, but it's not Christianity. It's also a doctrine that the church has, has wrestled with through the years and has gotten wrong at times through the years because oftentimes we try to interpret this through human understanding. And your logic and my logic is not capable of understanding how Jesus could be fully God and fully man at once. 
And so you can understand how the church through the years has gone off track on this issue. Well, thankfully, we're heirs of doctrine. We're heirs of orthodoxy. Uh, as the church for 2,000 years has tried to understand the incarnation, I, I want to give you a few concise statements about the incarnation, how God became flesh, that I think will help you. Um, and I'm going to comment on each for a moment. This isn't going to be an exhaustive list because I don't want to exhaust you this morning. But I think if, if you write it down and remember it, it'll keep you from some of the problematic ideas that people have had about the incarnation through the years. The first is this. There was never a time when Christ was not. There was never a time when Christ did not exist. He wasn't always flesh, but he was always God. We saw that back in verse 1 of John's gospel. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And I told you as we studied verse 1 that it led to a, a major division in the early church because there were some following a, a, man, a teacher named Arius who believed that Jesus was a created being who once did not exist, and then he was created. And he was the greatest of all created beings, but he was a created being. Now that heresy, by the way, did not die 2,000 years ago. I, I've heard this resurrected again and again and again, sometimes with false religions, sometimes with just confused people. Confused but well-intended people have gotten this wrong. Well, the man who opposed Arius, who led the opposition, was an Egyptian theologian named Athanasius. And Athanasius says, no, there was never a point where Christ was not. Now, Athanasius isn't being fancy there. He's saying the same thing Jesus said back in John chapter 8. Pastor Walton turned our attention there during Sunday school, but you remember this. Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Now, Abraham had lived 2,000 years before Jesus was saying this, and Jesus says, I preexisted Abraham. There was never a point where Christ was not. That's the first thing I want you to see. Second statement to write down is the unassumed is the unhealed. I know I'm going to need to explain that one. This is a statement from a fourth century theologian named Gregory of Nazianzus. There were all sorts of heresies floating around in that day that Jesus only had the exterior of a man, as if the body was sort of a costume, but internally he was really God. So the body was just sort of clothes that he put on, a tent that he dwelt in, but inwardly he was only God. He didn't really have a human mind. He didn't really have a human soul. And Gregory said, if Jesus didn't assume true humanity, human mind, human body, he couldn't redeem fallen humanity. And Jesus must be fully man in every truly human way because the unassumed is the unhealed. So Jesus became like us in every way except one. What was it? it? It was sin. What does that tell us about sin? Sin is the most unhuman thing you and I can do. So Jesus took on everything that it means to be truly human so that he could redeem humanity. There's certain things sometimes in our Christmas carols that we might sing that sound nice, but if we really put them through the grid of Orthodox Christianity, we ought to be cautious about the language. And so, for example, uh, Away in a Manger. I'm not trying to ruin this song for you. I don't think this is heresy, but I do think that 
that there's a statement in there that's unhelpful. It says, the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Is it a sin for a baby to cry? Not at all. That's, that's how they're made. They're made to express needs. Jesus was human in every way, so I fully expect that Jesus as an infant cried because that's what humans do. The unassumed is the unhealed. Third thing I want you to write down about the incarnation, how God became flesh, is that Christ came, became what we are without ever ceasing to be what he always was. Christ became what we are without ever ceasing to be what he always was. So there was a time when Jesus was God but not man. There was never a time when he was man but not God. You got that? There was a time when Jesus was God but not man. There was never a time when he was man but not God. This is the language of a church father named Irenaeus. He was correcting an idea that Jesus surrendered his divinity in order to become fully human, that he couldn't be simultaneously God and man. And so he had to abandon or subtract his divinity. That's not true. He never ceased to be God. He didn't subtract his divinity. In a sense, humanity was added to it. He never ceased to be God, even upon the cross. How is it that Jesus could simultaneously be in a manger and upholding the cosmos? How is it that he could be upon a cross and upholding the universe by the word of his power? I have no idea, and that's not my job. All I know is that the scriptures teach us that it happened. He became what we are without ever ceasing to be what he always was. Fourth thing I want you to write down. He remains fully God and fully man forever. He didn't become a God-man hybrid, a third thing that's unique from God, that's unique from us. He is fully God, fully man. Those two natures do not intermingle and become a hybrid of something else. His deity was not humanized nor his humanity deified. He is fully God, fully man, as the scriptures plainly affirm. This was the language of the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD, but they're only affirming what scripture taught. Think about Isaiah 9, if we had kept going in our passage that we use for our call to worship today, uh, unto us a child is born, that's humanity. Unto us a son is given, humanity. And his name shall be called the mighty God. That's either blasphemy or this child would be filled with divinity. He would be fully God and fully man. And Jesus remained that way, not only through his earthly life, but even today. You see, if Jesus had perhaps abandoned his humanity when he ascended to heaven, we wouldn't have a great high priest who could intercede for us. So he remains, even today, fully God and fully man. If he didn't, we would have no salvation. Now, I acknowledge I am a theological geek, and this is not what most of us are thinking about today, but this stuff is really important, because if, God, if Jesus wasn't truly God and truly man in one person, two natures forever, you cannot be saved. I cannot be saved. We would have a God who hates our sin, but we would not have a Savior who could bear our sin for us. 
I'm going to explain that more shortly, but the, the key point for now is that our salvation rests upon the reality that Jesus was fully God. He became man without ceasing to be God, and so remains one man with two natures forever. You get rid of that. You get rid of God became flesh, and it is no longer Christianity. Jehovah's Witnesses teach that. Mormonism teaches that. Many other false religions teach that Jesus was a good teacher, but he's not eternally God and man. Or you think back a hundred years in America, I don't know if you realize this, mainline denominations in America from all sorts of traditions, Methodist, Presbyterian, Baptist, were going through questions of what's the minimum somebody can believe and still be a minister of the gospel? And a hundred years ago, I don't know if you realize this, a hundred years ago in mainline Presbyterianism in America, not the denomination to which we belong, but a hundred years ago, mainline Presbyterianism in America said you could be an ordained minister and not believe in the virgin birth, not believe in the incarnation. Isn't that crazy? You know, we want to explain something crazy to our friends, let's explain that how you could be a, claim to be a minister of the gospel and not believe in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. We must hold tightly to these things because as soon as we abandon the incarnation, it is no longer Christianity. It's something else. It's a false religion. You shouldn't have to ask things like that of a pastor, but you do. When we begin to play loose and fast with the core tenets of Christianity like that, it's no longer Christianity at all. Now, I know in our cultural age, doctrinal precision is not very highly thought of. Someone might approach to me after the service and say, oh, Pastor, that's, that's fine, I, fully God, fully man, two nature. Don't, all I need, just give me Jesus. Don't give me all that stuff, just give me Jesus. You know what I'd say to him? What's this Jesus like that you want me to give you? Is he God? Is he man? And tell me about this, Jesus, because you have a theology of Jesus just as I do. The question is, is it the theology that John is teaching us here? You open up John 1, and John comes out swinging. He wants you to understand one of the most important truths of Christianity is that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's the first thing that uh, once you see the baby in the manger is God in the flesh. John doesn't stop there, and I'm so glad John doesn't stop there because, you know, that would be a terrifying thought if we stopped there, that God came to earth. The God who sees you when you're sleeping, he knows when you're awake, he knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake, that one. What if, he, what if that God came to earth and he was ready to bring up everything you've ever done? It's a terrifying thought. By the way, he will one day come and do that. But we need to understand the reason Jesus came to earth was to bring us grace in the fullest sense. That's our second point, grace in the fullest sense. Jesus Christ is full of grace. Some of you this afternoon, you're going to have conversation on the way home where wife says to the husband, uh, honey, who, who was that man in worship this morning? I think I recognized him. And husband says, oh, which man are you talking about? And then the wife's going to say, oh, you know, the man with, that had the pink tie on or the man that, 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 that had the gray hair or the man that had hair coming out of his ears. Who knows what it is? Whatever it was that stood out to her about that man, she's going to say, oh, you know that man. Well, John wants to make the point about Jesus. 
what's the thing that stood out most to John about Jesus? He says he is full of grace. He could have said, you know, we watched him for three years up close. He never sinned. He's full of holiness. That would have been true. We saw his miracles. He's full of power. We heard him teach. He's full of wisdom. Any of those things would be true. But the thing that John wants to bring to our eyes is he is full of grace. We see that at the end of verse 14. He's full of grace and truth. Verse 16, from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. We know it's true because John says it, but we also know it's true because of how Jesus lived. All throughout the Gospels, we see this man who is utterly majestic, always says what is truly the right thing at the right time in the right way, and yet completely welcoming. He's perfect in holiness, and he's tender towards sinners. And this one who upholds the entire world cares about the least of these. Isn't that amazing? Sometimes in our world, we can feel invisible, can't we? If we're not part of the, the, the best and the brightest, if we're not the elites, the wealthy, whatever it is, it's easy to feel invisible. It was true in Jesus' day. The religious enterprise of the first century was such that it was geared towards the elites, towards, towards the lovely and the learned, and it ignored the poor and the sick and the marginalized, but Jesus was drawn to those people. At every turn, we see this in the Gospels, that he is rebuffing the elites and he is drawn towards those who have made an utter mess of life. See, rather than this tabernacle of God running away from people like that, he's running to them. And he's inviting them and us to himself. So great is his love for sinners that he came to earth. As we sang him a few moments ago, he was rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake became poor. He lived 33 years of perfect innocency and died a criminal's death. He came not to pretend we never sinned or to sweep it under the rug, but to bear our sins. It was upon the cross that Christ paid for all the sins of all his people for all time. And this is what the whole Bible has been moving us towards. Indeed, all of history was moving towards this moment, the incarnation of the Son of God, when the fullness of God's grace would be unveiled for us to see. That's what John means in verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus Christ. I don't think John's saying that the law was antithetical towards grace. The law was actually incredibly gracious because it assured people, it assured sinners that God would make a way. And under the law, the way was through the sacrificial system where you would bring an animal sacrifice to God as a means of atonement. It was incredibly gracious. But of course, those sacrifices had to be repeated year after year after year. Why? Because the blood of bulls and goats couldn't take away sin. Sin requires a shedding of blood. And animal blood is no substitute for human blood. And so we needed a perfect man to bear our sin. But because sin is against an infinite God, it has an infinite penalty. It has infinite wrath, and so Jesus had to be fully and truly God to bear the wrath of God. 
This is why the incarnation is so important. The law of Moses prepared God's people for the long-awaited day when grace in the flesh would arrive. And we need to ask a, a very basic question. Look at verse 16. John says, we've all received grace upon grace. Does he mean that every person on the face of the earth has received grace? To some degree, yes. Even the most hardened of atheists has received grace in the sense that if you have ever had a moment of pleasure in your life, if anything has ever been less than miserable, that is the grace of God. It's far better than what we deserve. Because of sin, every moment of every day ought to be fully miserable. And so there's a sense in which there is what we call sometimes common grace, the goodness of God, that the rain falls on the just and the unjust. I don't think that's what John's talking about here. John is talking specifically about the grace of our salvation, which is for all who trust in Jesus Christ. I think that's the all that John's talking about here. All who trust in him, who turn away from their own righteousness and look to the righteousness of Christ and his grace. C.S. Lewis tells the imaginary story of a group of people who take a tour of heaven. And while they're there, a man on the tour sees a citizen of heaven whom he had known in his earthly life, and he's appalled that this man was there. What's a guy like you doing here? The man had been a scoundrel on earth, and so the tourist, the visitor, approaches him. And he's indignant that a man like that got in. And the tourist says, what are you doing here? I've worked hard all my life. I've been a good person. I've done right by all. I only want what I deserve. I don't want any charity. Now, charity is, is the same as grace. It's undeserved favor. And the heavenling responds, then do at once ask for the bleeding charity. Everything is here for the taking and nothing can be bought. Christ, heaven, salvation, it's all ours, but not by works. It is by grace alone. And so if you, if you think, well, I, I don't need grace. That's for weak people. I'd say, absolutely. I completely agree with you. It is for weak people, and you need it, and I need it. And without his grace, there is no hope for us. You can't buy salvation with good works. You'd have to live a billion lifetimes, and it still wouldn't be enough. It's all of grace. I think we'd all say that's wonderful. But going back to our friend, our visitor friend, if he asked us, well, why does it matter? Could you answer him? I fear that many uh, professing Christians would say, I really don't have a clue why it matters, but isn't it wonderful? Let's put point one and point two together. This Jesus, who is so incredibly gracious and kind and tender with broken sinners, is God incarnate. Look at verse 18. No one's ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side has made him known. Now, it's tempting for our minds to go down a rabbit trail and say, well, what about Adam and Eve? They saw God. Moses saw God. Joshua saw the commander of the Lord's army. And Jesus is saying, yes, when you saw God in those instances, that was me that you were seeing. I'm the one who has made him known. Here's what's such good news. This is why this matters. 
when we see the grace of God incarnate in Jesus Christ, we see what God is like. We see this huge heart who loved God, who loved people. And the wonder of it all is that the life of God is seen in the flesh. Look with me at, Rome, uh, at Hebrews 1 for a moment. See, I, I think, and the reason I think Hebrews 1 is going to be very important to us, sometimes I think it's possible to think of Jesus being all grace and truth, but behind Jesus is a disappointed God waiting for you to get your life in order. Hebrews 1, verse 3, He, speaking of Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus Christ is exactly what God looks like. If you have in your mind some vision of a God who says, oh, I know you trust in my son, but, you know, I still hold against you the things you did years ago. That God is a figment of your sinful imagination. If you trust in Jesus Christ, but you think there is a God who says, you know, you're never going to get it right, are you? You're such a failure. I'm tired of this. That God is a figment of your sinful imagination. There is no such God. It's not that we don't deserve such a God. We absolutely do. We absolutely deserve to be turned away from heaven. But Christ took all the wrath and the anger that our sins deserve so that all that is left for us is grace. For all who believe in him, the God in heaven is absolutely brimming, overflowing with grace to all who trust in Jesus. It's all free to all who believe. Isn't God so incredibly kind towards us? See, Christianity doesn't tell us what we do to reach God. It tells us what God has done to reach us. And all we do is believe it. Not simply that it's a fact that happened, the demons believe, they know it, but to set your whole hope for eternity upon that, that Jesus Christ would be your hope in this world and the world to come. That the eyes of your heart would look to the Lord Jesus, the one who spoke and the world came into existence, who also cried out as an infant. Look to him who hung the heavens in place, who also hung exposed, wounded, bleeding, and cried out in dereliction upon the cross. Look to him as he now reigns in glory. Set your heart upon him and his holiness, and then compare your weakness with his strength, your fickleness with his steadfast love, your anxieties with his sufficiency, your inconsistency with his immutability, your sin with his grace. Your sin is no match for the Savior. I, I often forget that. And you might say, what kind of pastor are you if you forget that? Not much of one some days. But if I'm not looking to Jesus with the eyes of my heart, I wake up every day thinking I've got to prove myself once again. Do you ever do that? kind of have this imaginary list of things that you have to do to be approved of by God. I've got to appear perfect. I've got to look as if I got all life in order. 
I have to have my quiet time. I have to raise my children perfectly. I have to do it all right. In other words, I try to use the same law, which was really given just to reveal Jesus and my need of him, and I try to use it as a way to work my way to him. If I forget how gracious he is, I'll go through my day hoping I can, get an, I can do enough to somehow earn his favor. How could I ever know I've done enough? Or I'll go through hardship, and I know some of you really struggle with this. Something happens, some trial comes into your life, and you think God is getting even with you for something you've done in the past. Is that you? Has there been something in your life that you think God's just getting even with me because I, whatever? Or you're just waiting. You're waiting for the shoe to drop. You're waiting for things to fall apart because of something you've done in the past. Friends, if God were getting even for you for something you've done, you would already be a smoldering pile of ashes. When you look to the Jesus of Scripture and you remember what he said to Philip, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father then my heart can rest assured this is what God is like. He is overflowing with grace upon grace to his children. He's not a disappointed parent waiting for you to mess up again. He's a loving father who rejoices over his children. In fact, even those hardships that we talked about a moment ago, those afflictions, if you belong to Jesus Christ by faith, those hardships are not God's way of getting even with you for something you did perhaps years ago, your, your, your failures in parenting, your abortion, your adultery, whatever the list is of things that keep popping up in our, in our consciences. If you're looking to Jesus Christ, the debt for those things has been fully paid. He didn't pay 99% and leave the other 1% for you. No, Jesus paid it all. And so your hardships, rather than God getting even with you, even your hardships are gracious because in the life of the Christian, God uses hardships to draw us to himself. Even our troubles are gracious. He loves us too much to hinder us from anything that would make us like Jesus Christ. Now, how often must we we look to Jesus so that we can experience the wonders of his grace? Because if we're not looking to Jesus all day, every day, we're going to revert back to those old ways. I love the words of, of one of my favorite pastors, a man named Robert Murray McShane. He says, for every look at self, take 10 looks at Christ. And then you add to it what Jesus is saying here. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's full of grace and truth. We could spend all day talking about it, and we'd be well off for it, but we need to keep going. I want you to think logically for a moment. If, point one, he's God in the flesh, point two, he's full of grace, then third, the only response that is rational, the only rational way we ought to live is to give glory to God in the highest. Look at verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father. You know, John certainly could have been talking about the time up on the Mount of Transfiguration when he and Peter and James were there and they saw Jesus radiate with his glory, the glory that he had before he, uh, that was evident in him before he departed heaven. But I don't think that's what John's talking about. I think he's speaking here of the glory of the incarnation, that God became man. 
God is utterly glorious in every way, and yet looking upon his glory would be like trying to stare at the sun. It would burn out your retinas. We could not comprehend, we could not glance even for a moment at the glory of God without it destroying us. And so what did God do? He took on human flesh. The Son of God stooped so low as to take on flesh so that we might be able to see Him. In the incarnation, the divine glory wasn't quenched, but it was clothed. Let me quote John Calvin. He said, It was indeed concealed under the low condition of the flesh, not to hide Him, but so as to cause His splendor to be seen. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. It's a wonderful mystery that, that the Word became flesh. And as that flesh veiled Him, the glory of God comes into view for us. And if we've really begin, begun to glimpse that glory, it will utterly fascinate our souls and change the direction of our lives. If you remember in the Old Testament, Moses met with God on the mountain. When he came down, his face shone with the reflected glory of God. And if you have beheld the glory of God, it will change you as well. So when John talks about here, when he says we have seen his glory, to have seen his glory is to be utterly transformed by him, to be redirected by him so that our lives no longer live for the fleeting things of this world, the money, the fame, the pleasures of this world, but the eternal things that are weighty with the glory of God. And what happens when we've seen his glory is that everything else begins to look different to us. Uh, C.S. Lewis I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because I see everything else by it. We say glory to God in the highest at Christmas and, and really as Christians every day because we see through the incarnation the glory of God in ways that we could have never seen before and it evokes something in our souls that reorients our lives, not around the fleeting fancies of our world, but the eternal weight of glory that we find in Jesus. And so to pick back up with, with our fictional conversation with our visitor friend, I might say to you, wow, that's really a fascinating story, isn't it? I'm not sure if I believe it, but you're telling me all these people decorating their houses for Christmas and going around singing Christmas carols and sending Christmas cards and busily doing all these things, all these people believe it? Now, that's where it really gets hard to explain, doesn't it? You know, for some, it's just another holiday. And he might say, wait, so you're telling me all these people do all of this to celebrate a baby they don't believe in? That's crazy, isn't it? Friends, you cannot be lukewarm towards Jesus Christ. Uh, oh, yeah, I believe in him. I go to church. I go to church Easter and Christmas. Now, when you believe in the Lord Jesus, it doesn't change one or two days per year. It reorients your whole life, that your life is lived to the glory of God. If Jesus Christ is really mighty God and everlasting Father, you can't just like him. In the Bible, people who actually saw and heard Jesus, they never reacted with indifference. They were either angry 
and thought he was crazy or they knelt down, knelt down before him in worship. But nobody simply liked him. Nobody said, you know, he's just so inspiring. I think I want to live a better life because of him. Now, if the baby born at Christmas is the mighty God, then the only logical thing to do is to love and serve him, not just one or two days a year, but every day, all of life to the glory of God. How do we apply this text? One simple application. The word of God became flesh in order to tabernacle among us. He did this so that you and I can live every moment in the presence of God. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle was a place you went. In Christ, He goes with you. He's come to us, and we live all of life in His presence. So let me ask you, how, how does that change your daily life? Every moment of every day, you live in the presence of God. Every moment of every day. When, when you lose your temper with your spouse, you live in the presence of God. When you gossip about somebody else, you are doing it in the presence of God. When you click on links you should not click on, you're doing so in the presence of God. And the Lord Jesus Christ, God incarnate, is with us at all times. We live every moment, Christian, in His presence. But are you living every moment in His presence for His glory? Let's make that our goal as a church family as we pray together. Lord God in heaven, we love these truths. They are more than empty sentimentalism. They are life-changing facts. And I pray, oh God, that you would enthrall us with Jesus Christ, that His glory would so radiate through our lives that it would transform and redirect and animate our lives, not once or twice a year, but every day. Father, we praise you that the Word became flesh, that He came and dwelt among us in the fullness of grace, and that we can now live life to glory, to the glory of God in the highest.